All right, we're going to look at Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43, and here's what we find. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. I pray for uh, Phil Carhart and Kathy's husband and Phil and John her sons, and all the rest of the family, Larry and Pam, and others that are feeling the deep sorrow and loss of Kathy, mingled with the joy of knowing that she's with you. Lord, do be near to them, comfort, guide. May we as a church be able to support them, even as we're wanting to support the Newcombs and others that have lost family recently. And Lord, we come this morning, and we're going to climb into your word and excited to do that. But God, we also recognize that our world right now is an unsettled place. Uh, the coronavirus has caused incredible uh, conversation all over the world, including our nation. And Lord, it seems in times of unsettlement, of apprehension, that people are often drawn to recognizing their lack of control of life and their need of you. So, Lord, I pray that you would use this in our nation and nations throughout the globe. God, may you help us as your people to walk wisely, to walk with faith and trust, but also, Lord, to be particularly available for conversations that we could point towards you as the one in charge, as the one overseeing the affairs of our life, as the one that enables us to find help in our own fears. Lord, may we trust you, and may we be used to help others do that as well. In Jesus' name, amen. In preparation for, oh, let me read the passage here. Oh, I did read it. <laughs> this is what happens, you do this three times. Um, in preparation for Easter, we have been, uh, we are involved in a seven sermon series that is focusing on the seven last statements of Jesus. And in this, these statements, we are using a visual, and the visual is of these seven candles, with each one representing uh, one of those seven statements. At the end of each sermon, we are just, uh, putting out one of the candles as representative of the fact that as Jesus made these statements throughout his time on the cross, his life was so slowly being extinguished. And after each sermon, you'll see me at the end this morning, just go and extinguish another candle. 
And Jesus' life was expiring. So when we come to Good Friday, which is the last night of this seven-sermon series, looking at the last statement of Jesus, at the end of the service, we will extinguish the candle and they will all be dark, all be out, representative of the life of Christ on Good Friday, his human life extinguished. The beauty is that we will also then, when you come in, for our weekend services, you will see the candles all relit, representative of the fact that he is alive, fully alive, and visualizing that the seven statements was not the end of the story of Jesus, but he would arise. This morning, I want to just reiterate a few statements that Pastor Ben made last week as he introduced this series. Uh, he gave us four things to think about as we listen to these statements of Jesus, and I'd just like to highlight them again. Number one, we want to note how relational they are. Three of these statements of Jesus are made directly to his father in conversation. One is directed to a criminal hanging on the cross with him. One is directed to his, his mother, and one is directed to the apostle John. These statements are not teaching, although they do teach us, but they are actual human conversations as Jesus continually did life and relationship with others. Secondly, be present with Jesus as you listen. The person on the cross that we're hearing his statements of, are, it is not the words of a dead man from antiquity. It is the words of an individual that is alive and living with us and still speaking into our lives through these very words. Third, identify with him as he identifies with you and your suffering. Jesus here identifies with us in our aloneness, our pain, our suffering. He experiences all of that on the cross. And it is another visual of Jesus identifying with us in the suffering of a sin-scarred world. And number four, remember that there is no WWGD, what would Jesus do without JD. The idea being that our goal is not simply to imitate Christ, but rather to surrender to Christ. It is Jesus that does the doing. It is Jesus that, that we don't just look at this and say, well, Jesus forgave, forgave people that have abused him, so I'll go out and, and forgive. No, it's that I recognize this is what Jesus does and does in people's lives. That we don't have the capacity to respond as the way Jesus did on the cross to people. But we have Christ. We have Jesus himself. And as we seek to follow him, we also must depend on him because he is the one that does the doing. Statement number one last week, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. The statement today, this morning, today, you will be with me in paradise. This morning we come to the deathbed, the deathbed conversation between three men. Jesus is one. He is apparently centered between the other two and two guys that are identified as criminals. In other, I just want to tell you a little about who that might be. In other passages, they are called thieves or usually translated robbers, but the word translated robbers or thieves is not the normal word of, a, of somebody that stole stuff. That's the word klepto. We get the word kleptomaniac from. It, it talks about anybody who steals, whether it's shoplifting or it's, uh, uh, you know, it's cheating on, on income tax, whatever it is, stealing from somebody. That's not the word that's used here. 
The word that is used here is criminal, which meant violent criminal. The word that is used robbers in some of the other passages in the Gospels is actually was talking not about a cat burglar who gets in somebody's house and steals their, their electronics. It's not a guy or a girl that does white collar crime um, stealing from your company. It is a violent robber. It is more a robber that is a part of a gang of thieves that come with weapons and, and either kill the people they're stealing from or are willing to. These were dangerous men. These were insurrectionists. These were individuals. We know that because of the way that they are treated by the Roman government. The Roman government had death penalty as its means of dealing with the most heinous of criminals. But even within the death penalty, they had gradations. For instance, crucifixion was just one method of the death penalty. Here were others. Beheading, strangling, casting from a great height, drowning, death by beast, which would be like in the arena. Crucifixion was by far the most significant because it was the most brutal and painful. And the idea, I'm not going to belabor this, but crucifixion was astonishingly brutal and painful. Basically, the way somebody died on the cross usually was by suffocation. That you often did have a little thing you could, you could push up on the cross with your feet. And you, you, were, you were in a position where you had to push up because if it, as your nails were, your arms were held by nails, as you began to sink in your chest cavity, it began to strangle you. So you were always trying to push up. Crucifixions usually took days. And you would be hanging, and eventually your legs would cramp, and they'd give out. You couldn't push anymore, and you was, it was a horrible way to die. Jesus did not have that because they actually st came along, and he expired on the cross. He was stabbed. Others, they would have broken his legs. That's what they did, so you couldn't push anymore. His legs were not broken, and that was a prophetic fulfillment but because he had already, he, he had already died. But it was an awful way to die. And it was the most, the, the Romans had learned about this 500 years from the Carthaginians from North Africa. And they liked it because this is the best way to intimidate people. And that leads to the other thing. This was reserved for who Rome saw as the most dangerous offenders. When we use the death penalty in our country, it is typically that we take the person's life who has taken another person's life. It is first degree murder. Not so in Rome. Rome used the death penalty of crucifixion to give a message. It was used to warn. It was used against those that they felt were the greatest threat to Rome. It was insurrectionist. It was slaves that had left their slave owner and were trying to gather other slaves. There were, the historic use of crucifixion was by people that Rome wanted to say, don't ever be like this guy or you'll get what he got. And this is the worst possible thing we can show you as a way to die. These men were like Barabbas. You know, the guy that was swapped out for, for Jesus. There should have been three of them that were criminals on, on, on Golgotha's hill. And the third one was a guy named Barabbas. He was slated to go. But the people asked for him, and Jesus got put in his place. And they said, let, let, let us have Barabbas. You take Jesus to the cross. Who was Barabbas? Well, here's who he was. Matthew 23, verse 19. 
Barabbas was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. These were the kind of guys that are on the cross with Jesus. These are the kind of people that were crucified. Jesus was included there by the pressing of the religious leaders because of the fact that he claimed to be a king and they were trying to present him as trying to lead a rebellion against Rome. And such people were a threat to the empire. But what I want to highlight is these were not just white-collar crime guys. These were not just petty thieves. These were violent men. And a striking statement is made in Matthew chapter 27 where it says this in verse 38 and following, then two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on the right and one on the left, and those who had passed by derided him, saying, save yourself, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. And then listen to this, verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Both robbers. Now things changed later in the time on the cross, as we'll see in our passage this morning. But originally, both men are reviling and mocking and slandering and abusing Jesus verbally. But something changed. One of them completely was transformed. And to understand what Jesus is really saying to this man in this statement, we need to look at what took place in this guy's life. So we look first at the criminal who changed his mind at the 11th hour in verses 39 to 42. And the first thing we find is he changed his mind about himself. He saw himself as answerable to God. From one, end, one, one guy on this end to the other guy, he shouts across when he, when he sees the guy continuing to mock Jesus. And he says, don't you fear God? You know, he's saying to his buddy, don't you have some awareness that we're up here deservedly, that we are getting what we deserved? Don't you fear God? I've preached this before on this subject. Um, fear of God has two aspects to it. There is an initial fear of God, which is a dread-filled fear of God's greatness. It is when a person sees God's power, his eternalness, his all-knowing, his unchangingness, his holiness. And one is stunned with the bigness and the greatness of God. No one who bows the knee to Jesus Christ, no one who accepts Christ as Lord and Savior, avoids this experience. There comes a time to some degree when you realize God's big, he's holy. And my sin is not just against my wife. It's not just against the guy I cussed out. It's not just against the person I gossiped about. All of my sin is against God, this big God. And I'm throwing off his authority. I'm, I'm, I'm saying his claims of lordship on my life, I don't want. And there's this dawning awareness that, not, that God is no one to trifle with, that this matters what I do, that, that it isn't just, you know, I just do little white lies, that ultimately my sin is against a holy God. And God-fearing starts with this sense that 
There's a sense of dread that, oh my goodness. And if you've come to Jesus Christ as Savior, you may never have thought about it, but there was a moment or, or a, a significant amount of time perhaps for some where you were aware that, wow, my sin's real. That I really have sinned against God. And then I answer to God. This man has this awareness. He's experiencing this. He looks at the other dude and says, don't you see yourself at all? Don't you see that we, we deserve judgment? Don't you see? Look at yourself. Look at, I'm looking at me. There's another aspect to the fear of God. And this is where the, new, the Old and New Testament take us. And that is the, the, the fear of God to which, in which we grow as we walk with God. And this is what I call a delight-filled fear of God. It is, a, it is an awe of God. It is, starts with the, the dread, but it morphs into an awareness as we begin to know not only God in His greatness, but God in His goodness. His mercy, His grace, His faithfulness, His love, His compassion, His justice. Psalm 130 verse 4, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. What is he saying we're fearing? We're awed by? It's not his power, his might, his eternality, his holiness. It's your forgiveness. Your mercy stuns us. This is what happened to this guy on the cross. First of all, he saw his sin, and he saw the just holiness of God, but he also saw the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the forgiveness of God. This guy is experiencing the reality of a God to be awed with as he is understanding the nature of his own sin. The second thing we noticed as a corollary to that is he saw himself then among the guilty. Verse 41, he yells at his buddy, we're getting what our deeds deserve. The word deserve literally means earned. We're getting what we earned. We deserve judgment. This is the absolutely essential step in anyone coming to know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. There comes a point when you realize I deserve eternal separation from God. I don't deserve to go to heaven. It's not going to be because I, 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 can, I can chalk up enough moral points. that if, I, if God just dealt on the basis of fairness and justice, I don't deserve heaven. But Jesus Christ provides a way. It's why Romans 6 says it this way. For the wages, for what we've earned, literally, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This guy got it. He is experiencing what is known as biblical repentance. Repentance means you change or turn your mind. He's seeing himself differently. He starts on the cross as a mocker of Jesus. But something is going on in his soul that is enabling him to see, oh my goodness, I'm here not because Rome is brutal. I'm here because I am sinful, and I, I, I am deserving of, of judgment. His, his heart is repenting. His mind is changing. But he also changed his mind about Jesus. He saw the mercy of the Son of God. Verse 41, he shouts out to the other guy, this man 
has done nothing wrong. In contrast to us, he's done nothing wrong. The word out, wrong literally is the word out of place. It, it, it's, it's saying, uh, it's, and we talk this way. He says, you know, the way you talked about me was out of line. It was out of place. It was inappropriate. So this guy hasn't done anything. He's done nothing inappropriate, nothing unsavory, nothing evil, nothing deserving of, 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 of condemnation. That's not true of you, and it's not true of me. But he says, this guy is different. This guy is unique, shockingly unique. And there is nothing about the way he responds that is like our sinful, prideful, hateful responses. What caused him to change his mind about Jesus? Well, while he has been hanging on the cross, everyone has been mocking and walking by and mocking Christ. The people walking by, the chief priests and religious leaders, the soldiers, the criminals themselves have been making fun of Jesus' claims, adding insult to his own pain on the cross. And here's what he heard Jesus say. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. As this guy listened, as he heard this, he recognized that the response of Jesus is so strikingly, shockingly unique. This is different. This feels like deity, something beyond human experience. This feels kingly. And in his soul, it flashes into his soul. This is how the divine king should behave. Now, you might be there, and I hope you're tracking with me and thinking with me and think, well, I think other things would have struck him, that this is the son of God, that this is uh, 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 no one to be trifled with, that this is a majestic king to be worshipped. What if Jesus did something with power and might? Like, what if Jesus from the cross all of a sudden looked down darts out of his eyes with lightning bolts and, and just fried some of the Roman soldiers? I mean, that'd get people's attention, right? I mean, that'd strike them. Or if Jesus did the, 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 the incredible Hulk thing and all of a sudden just grows and, 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 and his arms rip out of the nails and, and he stands over the people and the Roman soldiers are cowering and that'd get the attention of the, the religious leaders and, and, and they'd see, wow, this guy's somebody. You see, what was happening at the cross was a far more awe-inspiring demonstration of the nature of deity. It is the demonstration of mercy and forgiveness. Years ago, Marion and I uh, traveled to Ankara, Turkey. I was speaking to the uh, crew staff, which is Campus Crusade, um, that were in that part of the world, and we were speaking to people that were um, staff in the former Soviet bloc countries, the North African countries, and the Middle East. That was the area from which everybody came, and virtually everybody there, just a handful of Americans, almost everybody there were from those countries, and all of them had grown up in one of two cultures. Either the atheistic culture of communism, the Soviet bloc, 
or a, a totally Islamic dominated culture. And, and virtually all of them that we talked to had not been raised in a Christian context. They had all come to Jesus later, out of atheism or out of Islam. And we were meeting one time at lunch. Mary and I had lunch with a, a, a young woman who was on staff, and she told us her story. She told us she had been raised in a communist bloc country. The wall had fallen. The Soviet Union had been broken apart. And she now could, was able to travel and to complete her postgraduate studies in another country. So she went to another country and for the first time had the opportunity um, to pursue religion. And so she was interested in finding out about God and learning about God. And so she began to study Islam because it was the predominant religion of the culture in which she went. And she began to study Islam. And in her own words, her perspective of that was that she found a God that was a God of power and might, a God to be intimidated by, a, a, a God in some ways to be dread. And her feeling was, these do not strike me as unique qualities. I know power. I know might. I know living in fear of people in power. This doesn't feel different and unique and special. And then somebody gave her a New Testament. She began to read the Gospels, and she began to read about a God who had come among people and become one of them, and he had, and he had made himself a servant to them, and that he'd even, through the person of his son, died in their place and received their punishment. And she said, this struck me as a God worthy, who was so different, so unique, that I willingly wanted him to be my king and Lord of my life. This is what happened to the man on the cross. He says, this is different. I've never experienced such transforming power in a person that they can forgive the people that are, that are defiling them and deriding them in the most painful, suffering moment imaginable. This is a man worthy of my allegiance. This is a man that enables me to see the sinfulness of myself because I see the heart of forgiveness. His response was he appealed to the mercy of the Son of God in verse 42, and he says this, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, take me with you in the next life. They were all pretty clear where this was about to end, how this is going to end the next few hours. Take me with you into your kingdom. It's striking what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, look, Jesus, um, you know, would you consider taking me? Because quite honestly, I'm embarrassed with the way everybody's treating you. I mean, I, I even got wrapped up in it myself. But, but I, 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 I'm, I'm a reformed man, and I'm going to, you know, I, I'm not there anymore. And, and now I'm, I'm, I'm with you, and I'd be your best follower. Look, would you, just, would you just take me along? No. He says, Jesus, I got nothing. I got no claim. I deserve to be here. but you seem to be a God who delights to show mercy. You forgive people. Would, would you remember me? Would, would you take me? Would you accept me? That leads us to Jesus' words. 
this won't be as long. Jesus promised to the criminal who changed his mind at the 11th hour. Verse 43. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. He offers instantaneous new destiny. Today you will be with me. You have to believe that Jesus hanging from the cross and he has no words to the guy that's mocking him. He doesn't even respond. But as he's hanging there, he turns to this guy and this broken, humbled man. And I'm sure he looks at him and he says, today you'll be with me. You see, God came in Christ to be with us. That's why his name in Isaiah 9, 6 is Emmanuel, God with us. Oops. That's, um, that's, that's who he is. Jesus came to be God with us that we could be with him forever. He came to offer life through his death and dying the death that we should have died and then living the life that we should have lived. He made a way that we could be with him. It's what the Bible is all about. And this guy, to some degree, got it. And what a moment it must have been when Jesus said, we're, we're both going to die, but this very day you'll be with me in paradise. Which leads to the other thing. He offered him eternal glory. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The word paradise is used three times in the New Testament. This is the first passage. It's used in two others. And both are important in understanding what he's saying. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2 through 4, Paul says it this way. And he's talking about himself, by the way. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows, was caught up in paradise and heard inexpressible things. Now, you'll notice there that being caught up to the third heaven and being caught up to paradise are the same thing. They are synonymous. And so this, this idea of paradise being the third heaven, I'd like to just tell you what that's referring to. Throughout the Bible, when it talks about he heaven is used in three different ways. And these are the three references to the different aspects of heaven. The first is it talks about the heavens. Uh, the heavens as the uh, atmosphere around us that in this, we look and we look, and when you look up at the sky, that form of heaven is talking about the heavens in the atmosphere. The second sense of the heavens is what we call the universe, the starry host, the planets, the sun, the moon, all, of, all that is out there, the galaxies, are a part of the second heaven. The third heaven is a reference to the place of blessedness where God dwells. And that's what Paul is calling paradise. Now, in the Old Testament, paradise is the continual title for the Garden of Eden. There are references to that when they translate the Garden of Eden uh, in, from Hebrew to Greek. The Greek word they used is not Eden, it's actually paradise. That they associated Eden as being uh, the, the sense of what paradise is. Interestingly, the word paradise means park. That and, and Revelation 2 picks up on this. This is what it says in verse 7. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the, Lord, what the Spirit says to the churches. 
to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which was in the Garden of Eden, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, so what is he saying paradise is? Well, here's a visual. It refers to the Garden of Eden as its model. And it involves two things. One, intimate communion in the presence of God. It also involves the beauty of the whole cosmos reflecting the Garden of Eden, the new heavens and new earth. Now, we don't know where or what that is now. We don't even know how to evaluate time in all of this. But we do know what it will one day be. We know it's the presence of God now. We don't know what it, we can't visualize it, but we can visualize it, what it will be eternally. It will be where Jesus describes it, that there will be a new heaven and new earth on the model of the Garden of Eden. Perfection, beauty, joy, health, happiness, shalom, life as it was designed to be. God's park a worldwide, earthwild park of God, a universe park of God, filled with all the beauties and anything, any positive, wholesome, beautiful experience or locale that you have ever been in in this world is just a glimpse of what God's park will be like, the paradise of God. It is where God's children are going to spend eternity. It's not just a cloud playing a harp. I mean, if you're a harp player, that might be cool. But for most of us, that we have different aspirations. But it'll be real. It's tangible. It, paradise. It, it's, it's the Garden of Eden everywhere. It's peace and beauty. And, and I've said this to you before, but, you know, back in the day, I was a skier and Going down the slopes, I remember one time it was twilight, it was dark, and there was light snow coming down, and I was going down through the trees and uh, a slope, and I was, I was laughing with joy. I, was, I just so, and I just, I, I just felt, the, the way I felt, the freedom and the joy of, of the beauty and the exhilaration physically of doing this, and it just flashed through my mind, this is the kind of feeling heaven will be. That I, I won't, I'll be really surprised if there aren't snow, slopes in heaven. I'm not, I'm not just saying this. I believe this. I think that it's going to be everything you can think of, the greatest beautiful moment of my life. That was a snapshot of what heaven, the paradise of the future is. And Jesus says to this guy, today, you're going to be with me. Okay, applications right here at the end. Three short things that I'd like to just have you take away. These are not in your outline. Uh, they're all, they all begin with an N-word, and they're short. The first lesson we learn from Jesus' words to the criminal, nothing you do. There is nothing this guy did to earn paradise. Nothing. There's not, he didn't have time to go out and reform his life. He didn't have time to, to, to become a good guy and the replacement of being a bad guy. I believe that's one of the primary weans this story is in the Scripture to remind us this guy is the ultimate visual that all he did was desperately cry out to Jesus for rescue, 
Jesus, will you remember me? Will you include me? When you come into your kingdom, when, when you go, whatever's beyond this, will you take me? That's all he had. And Jesus said, that's all I want. It's not about you. It's about what I do for you. There's nothing you do to earn paradise except claim the work of Jesus done in your behalf. It is the repentance that recognizes that all you have done just qualifies you for judgment ultimately. But Jesus has provided a way for paradise. Secondly, now is the time. Jesus said this to the guy today. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, in God's sovereign timetable, it happened to be the final moments of this guy's life that he encountered Christ. But maybe today is your today. Maybe the very fact that you're here today is the moment that God is supernaturally, sovereignly choosing to speak to your heart today, today. Won't you embrace me as your Savior, as, as your Deliverer, that you too might, by God's grace, enter the paradise of God in, for eternity. There's nothing you do. Now's the time. And the last one. I speak this one to parents, grandparents, spouses, children who have loved ones, Dear friends that have not yet embraced Christ as Savior, here's the end for you. Never give up. Never give up. This guy had some religious background. He understood that Jesus had a kingdom. He had some sense of, of, of what was going on. It's likely he was Jewish. Most people were in that culture. And he had renounced it all. He'd bagged it all. He'd walked away from it all. All the way up to the early part of the cross, right? He's on the cross, still mocking Jesus. But somewhere in there, at the 11th hour of 11th hour, I mean at 1159, this guy's heart was melted by the creative sovereignty of God speaking truth into his life. He's the beautiful reminder to all of us that long for those people to come to Jesus, never give up, never stop praying, never stop crying, never stop longing. This morning, we're reminded that God is offering us through Christ to be participants in His own park forever. It's a real place. It's a real new earth. The earth is part of it, but it's the part that we understand the best, so I think it's the one we can get the most visuals from. It's not designed for good people or, or, or people who have done the right things or have been faithful churches. It's a place designed for sinners who see their need of Christ. Maybe today is when God is just coming alongside of you. And look, this guy was an insurrectionist. Very likely he was a murderer just like Barabbas. Those were his people. He never did one good thing that merited his deserving to go to heaven. It certainly reminds us that there is nobody here that is disqualified from God's I can rescue you list. 
Turn to him today. Lord, we come to you. We delight to think of paradise. We delight to think that that is our destiny and it's all because of you. Lord, we also long for others to know you. God, I pray that your spirit, even in this moment, would be working in the lives of people in this room, watching online. Lord, be drawing their hearts towards grace and mercy and forgiveness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to close our service in a moment as the song is being played by Andrew Peterson. I I encourage you to just take a minute before you leave, just listen to some of the words. It includes all the sayings of Jesus, but maybe listen to the first couple and then go ahead and, and we'll consider that our time of dismissal. Thank you. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them, they know not what they do.